Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Groundhog Day. Haven't you heard? Every week we'll have a memo day, and every other week we'll be debating a government shutdown, and every other night in between, Adam Schiff will be gracing your TV screen warning about yet another plot to destroy America. You really don't think that time's bending the laws of physics? The State of the Union was only three days ago. I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth, and this is the Political Pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us. We know you need it. Thanks to Peter Suderman at Reason for suggesting White Russians, which we're drinking in honor of our favorite weirdo to ever rant on cable news without a lawyer while under federal investigation, Carter Page. Nick B. on Twitter suggested, quote, Everclear, just as this entire news cycle ought to be doused in gasoline, so should your liver. And honestly, Nick, you're not wrong, but unfortunately, we have to, uh, we have to talk about both my and Avery's favorite topic, Russia. So, if you've been following... Uh, today is Memo Day, so the um, all too hyped up four-page memo written by um, Devin Nunes, uh, the Republican on the Intelligence Committee. So it was released, and there are a bunch of takeaways that sort of show this was not a nothing burger, but this also wasn't a game changer. So really, both sides had tor- had horrible takes on this. Not sides as in political sides, but really as in parties. This was. Pretty much the worst of party politics. So it confirmed the New York Times scoop that the entire Russia investigation was started by George Papadopoulos bragging about having access to Hillary Clinton's emails uh, while drinking with uh, Australian officials. So it's basically the drunken ramblings. I know you can't see me, but I just eye rolled at that. Okay, just well, you know. well it, it, okay. <laughs> this is this is an important thing to start off with because it the Nunes investigation, whether he intended to or not, disproves the entire idea that the investigation was solely a DNC conspiracy. Obviously, people who were associated with the Trump campaign did instigate it because they were being careless. That being said, it's important to recognize that Papadopoulos was really not that involved with the... I mean, it was... It's, it's evidence that both the Trump campaign was deeply irresponsible in who they allowed to be associated with it, but also that the Trump-Russia investigation still doesn't have that much to do with Trump himself. So that's, so it basically confirms that New York Times scoop that, that, the, that the Russia investigation predates the dossier. However, it also alleges... And again, you have to trust all the facts that Nunes writes about to be true, which we can't. I don't think wholesale. It alleges that the FISA application, which had to contain probable cause in order to issue a FISA warrant for Carter Page, relied solely on the Steele dossier and that the FBI did not independently confirm what was included in the dossier. So... This is, I think, where members on the right are more concerned because it's the idea that, consider the reverse. If Steve Bannon, now out of the White House, not doing anything, if he was conducting oppo research on whatever Democrats were running in 2020, if he came up with the Oprah dossier, gave it to the FBI, and they didn't try and corroborate any of the facts in it and then use that to issue a FISA warrant. That's concerning from a Fourth Amendment perspective because, I mean, if you're as much of a libertarian in these issues as I am, the FISA warrants, especially FISA 702, are constitutionally questionable at best. Uh, but Avery, I would I would like your take on this. Well, I'd like to rewind back a bit and just kind of give a background on who Nunes is to begin with. Uh, people just essentially know him as a Republican, but he is the chair of the House Intelligence Committee and a longtime notorious Trump ally. Uh, Just to give context to this memo in itself, he served on Trump's transition team after the election and defended formal National Security Advisor Michael Flynn when he was credibly accused of lying about his contacts with Russia last February. So from what I've gathered from reading, um, The initial sense amongst the intelligence community and experts uh, when it was found out that Nunez Nunez was working on this memo to release uh, was that this was just another case of Nunez misrepresenting intelligence to support Trump's political position. Now, I'll leave that there. These aren't my particular opinions, but I think it's important to develop context in this scenario. And so the New York Times actually had a great piece kind of explaining uh, this memo and everything that's surrounding it because 
to be honest with you, even me myself, I've been so lost in everything that's been going on about it. They described it as the tale of two memos. So what we've seen today is the Republican memo drafted by Nunes, uh, who, you know, I've already given the context on, essentially asserting that officials relied on info from a former British intelligence officer without adequately explaining that the Democrats had financed the research that went into this kind of tip that was given to the FBI. Um, And so those on the Trump side of the argument say that the memo shows that the FBI's Russia investigation was politically biased. Now, on the other hand, you have a memo from Democrat Representative Adam Schiff, which has not been declassified. And here's where I draw, I guess, a little bit of concern with that. If you're going to release the Republican memo, which many people are citing as, okay, it's hearsay, it's circumstantial, there's no actual evidence, then just release the Democratic memo too, so that people can look at both sides and and come to their own conclusions and, and kind of deduct from each what they believe to be true, what they believe to be common amongst both memos and what they believe to be different. So in Schiff's memo, which is currently classified, it basically explains why points in the Nunes memo are wrong and misleading. It says that the info from the British intelligence officer was, quote, only one thread in a tapestry of evidence from various sources that the Nunes memo ignored, uh, thus exaggerating its relative importance. And there has been this outlash amongst the Democratic community for why was the Republican memo release, whereas the Democrats wasn't. And I think that kind of speaks to the administration and Trump obviously having an interest in releasing uh, Republican info more than Democrat. Well, okay, I'd like to actually take that a step further. Don't just release the Democratic memo. Release the FISA application that was used in order to acquire the warrant. Release the McCabe testimony. All of these are things that could easily discredit everything that Nunes said. All these are things that could easily discredit what the Democrats will say in their memo. Quite frankly, I don't know why we're relying on partisan memos in the first place. I mean, if we're just going to try and split the difference. And, and, I mean, the greater conversation about this is about does the federal government overclassify information for political bent? I mean, what? Or does the government declassify information for political advantage in this case? No, this, okay, speech is assumed to be free. Classifying evidence or classifying documents, transcripts, memos, these are all things that require an extra measure for the government to do. The assumption that the natural inertia of speech is that it is free. Now, okay, real, one of, when, one only, of, when only one memo is declassified, one when only one political party's memo is declassified, doesn't that not work to discredit the work of the special counsel in Trump's favor? Well, no, because, I mean, the special counsel and I think... Most smart people I know have been saying this from day one. Special counsel should be really unaffected by any of the political playing that's going on because they're in, they're conducting a private investigation. But the, the fact, fact is, that it is the fact is that it is affected when it gets this large in the media. Because if they aren't protecting their sources and if they aren't preventing leaks, that's their fault. They they are letting their investigation be tainted by politics. So, and, and that being said, Trey Gowdy, who wrote part of the memo, tweeted out today that even though the memo is being released. Nothing in it contains anything that invalidates the Mueller investigation entirely. I mean, if anything, the memo really had more to do about Carter Page, the Fourth Amendment, and FISA courts than it had anything to do about Donald Trump and partisan politics. I mean, Carter Page hasn't been relevant to the Trump administration since October of 2016, before Trump was even elected. So, I, to I, be fair, he'd been on the FBI radar since at least as far back as 2013. Which is a problem about Carter Page. And I'm not saying that Carter Page... Should be exonerated. Does that say something about a problem with the Trump campaign not vetting people who had close ties to? I their think that much is obvious at this point. It's like I mean, is anyone saying Trump is judicious and careful in his speech and does a good job protecting? Oh who's no, but in that his, doesn't give you a free pass either. Outer, no, just with the bar being set low. No, but 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 I guess at what point do the revelations stop being revelatory? You know, and also furthermore. Democrats claimed that releasing the memo would destroy our national security. And it was Cory Booker who said that releasing the memo was tantamount to treasonous. The memo was released unredacted. What in there compromised well, national also security? also has absolutely no evidence in it. Yeah, because it's a memo. It's not like it's like it has like a work cited. It doesn't include the McCabe testimony. I think it that doesn't- particular argument is invalid. However, uh, Cory, Cory Booker should have came at the argument from a standpoint of it is not okay to release 
a partisan memo without releasing the other side, meaning Adam Schiff and the Democrats. I mean, this is pretty basic game theory. You have two parties, either one, both assume that the other one is going to do the lowest bar. It's just extremely manipulative to the public, which has to deduct something from this memo when they are not given the other side. And I'm not even saying this. I, I truly believe if I was a Republican, I would still be advocating for this exact same thing, because why would you not want all of the information? And and maybe that's me being too, like I guess, too idealistic. But why would I ever want to be ignorant about a situation? I would always want to see both sides of it and all sides, right? Well, so it's, it's, it's this why- is why it is not ethical for them to have released the Republican memo, not the Democratic. Well, it's just, I'm just uninterested in the memos. I'm interested in everything that the memos are based upon. I want the McCabe testimony. I want to see the FISA application. And that's sort of the drum that we should be, we shouldn't yeah. be. At this so, point, so it's now, he said, she said, and who can really debate any of this? It's No, and, and, and it's why I think we on this podcast have always expressed great exasperation whenever we discuss Russia, because it's, a federal investigation relating to national security in the FBI is never going to be something that the public can have an intelligent conversation about while so much of what is being discussed is still highly classified information. Oh, yeah. We've been given maybe even less than 1% of what... We've been given crumbs, to quote of, Nancy of, Pelosi. Yeah, of what, of what everyone on the inside truly knows about this. So... To me, this is where it becomes troublesome, right? So if you're not going to release absolutely every part of relevant evidence and you're only going to give us just this little crumb or tidbit of hearsay written by a Republican or even written by a Democrat if the Democratic memo was just released or both, then that becomes very troublesome and manipulative to the American public and beyond who are reading these and trying to make their own deductions from this and, and people who are going to be going to the polls in 2018, regardless if that plays in the Democrats' favor of Republicans, this is very misleading information when we aren't given the whole case. But, so, okay, I but, from but the standpoint, it's all or nothing. Is it misleading? Okay. But I don't even know if, if the concern is that the Nunes memo is misleading so much as it is. It's irrelevant to Trump. It, I mean, yes, there's the bits at the end about Peter Stroke and Lisa Page and a little bit of impropriety. Like, they try to sort of, like, just throw in a dash of criticizing the FBA's mishandling of the Hillary Clinton investigation. But for the most part, it's really about Carter Page and George Papadopoulos, two characters. I mean, Carter Page may not have ever even met Trump. The one time in which that foreign policy advisory team did meet with Trump, Carter Page wasn't even there because he had another business engagement. So this is not someone who is deeply connected to Allegedly. Allegedly, but I mean, right now, I, I, I think the fact that we have so much information that we don't need means that if we, if, if, if Carter Page and Trump had been in close correspondence, we would know by now. I mean, Lord knows the Trump campaign was not exactly careful about their communications. So I, I, I think the, I mean, again, maybe this is my inner libertarian being extremely biased. This is a greater conversation about how these FISA courts operate to begin with. Um, I don't really, I wouldn't really care if this was Democratic research or Republican um, opposition research. The fact is, is that if you're giving out a warrant that is, that is constitutionally questionable at best, based on oppo research that you're saying is establishing probable cause, but has not even been independently verified, what does that say about the standing of our Fourth Amendment? That's the, that's my real concern. I don't care about. I mean, I care about the Trump administration insofar as I care about the status of this country. If they acted inappropriately or criminally, I'm not trying to bolster them. But right now, I don't think we have any evidence that Trump or anyone who was important in the campaign did do that yet, other than Mike Flynn, who was um, terminated. So, I think the bigger cons- the bigger thing that this exposes is. What, how are we issuing these warrants? And I know that Justin Amash on um, the Republican representative representative um, earlier was saying that he's been, um, that, that Republicans who are expressing outrage over the basis of, of this warrant being issued, 
they should be more critical and more willing to vote on legislation that limits the powers of these FISA courts. And that's not a very politically glamorous message to be sharing, but I think that it's important anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, in this instance, I look at anyone who's pointing the finger at why was this warrant issued in the first place. To me, in in itself, that looks fishy. So as you touched on, uh, under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the Justice Department has to convince a judge that they're is probable cause to suspect that a person is an agent of a foreign power and is engaged in criminal conduct. Now, the tip that was given to the FBI in which opened this grander investigation, yes, it was maybe funded through a nefarious manner. However, I would like to circle back and say that Carter Page had been interviewed by the FBI in 2013 and was under the FBI's watch since 2013 for kind of this mischievous, nefarious, fishy conduct that he already had going on with the Russians. So when you couple that, the fact it's not in 2016 when the FBI was given this tip, it came out of nowhere and they just decided to open up a case on him. This had been something that was building for at least three years prior in advance. So I think when going to the FISA courts and showing that timeline, as well as it also came out in multiple articles this evening that the FBI did, in fact, um, I guess they were they were transparent with the FISA court about the information from Steele and where it was coming from and how it was funded. So full, there was full disclosure there to what we know, at least from what's been reported. I mean, yeah. And, so and at this I point, don't we're relying on sources from Nunes and sources from the New York Times. They're just sources. Yeah, exactly. And so at this point, I don't necessarily care about the methods to the madness. I care about the madness itself. I care about if there was an actual crime committed, not why was this investigation opened. I think that actually shows kind of guiltiness when someone's pointing the finger at, oh, well, why are you investigating this I mean, in the first I, place? Rather than, okay, shoot, I, what actually okay. happened? What this went is, wrong? This is where my it's my, inner, it's my inner civil libertarian's time to shine. This is where I strongly disagree. I'm a deontologist, first and foremost. And I think the fact is, it doesn't matter if Carter Page was sketchy to begin with, if the sole basis of this individual FISA warrant was... Not just oppo research, I mean, the politicization of it concerns me, obviously, but the fact that the FBI wouldn't independently verify something that was already had parts of it debunked within an hour of it coming out when it came out early in 2017. I mean, again, like, and I know I've already said this on the podcast before, but it was when, when it came out, I remember... I when this is back when I ran my own small USC news bureau. I was messaging everyone in our like Slack channel. Someone get me the baseball coach's number because one of the things that was immediately debunked and Rosie Gray beat me to it um, was that Michael Cohn, the Trump attorney, was not in the Czech Republic meeting with a Russian agent, but was at USC. So immediately, one small piece, boom, false. In the dossier. And and I don't say that because that detail was significant, because I mean, like obviously that was not the most important thing about the Russia about the Steele dossier. But the fact that the FBI couldn't corroborate or wouldn't even think twice about, well, this entire thing seems a little bit insane. Maybe we need to research it a little bit more before we issue this warrant. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that, but I think, okay, so they went down that rabbit hole and it's led to obviously some fruitful things and some some issues that have demanded further investigation. Do I think that so, it was so the most so ethical manner to... justify the means type approach. Yeah, that's the approach I'm taking. Because the thing is, if a crime was committed, then that's what matters. And that's what needs to be decided and figured out. I mean, I, I, I strongly disagree for a number of philosophical reasons. I think that that's the way the war on drugs has become the size that it is. I think that's the way that we deal with, I mean, so many civil rights and civil liberties violations in this country has been through this, like, this teleological form but of But what's the, the remedy to this, right? What, shut down the entire investigation because it doesn't seem as though there was enough evidence to justify no, a FISA warrant well, in, re- well, in retrospect? Because... Taking it from a realist point of view, okay, that happened. Should it have happened? Potentially not. But it happened. It's led us to this. You're not going to close a book at this point. No, I, I, I certainly think that this is no reason to shut down the Mueller investigation, especially considering it so still that's doesn't the really implicate 
Donald Trump himself that much. And not that it would matter. I, I care about the facts. But it does call into question how these FISA courts operate. It does call into question why, why, why would Democrats be saying that this would jeopardize national security if it came out? It came out and we still like, I mean, there was nothing in there that I read that struck me as an obvious bombshell that it interferes with the way that our national security has been operating. I think that was Democrats being dramatic because they knew that their memo wasn't going to be declassified. And so they knew that a potentially more biased towards Republicans memo was being released and they wanted to get out in front of it and kind of debunk it right away. I mean, at the end of the day, I I just really want to see the McCabe testimony. I really want to see the FISA application itself. Um, It's... There, I guess to, I'm trying to phrase this in the right way because I don't want to. I don't want to sound conspiratorial at all or anything. But if I think that there will be justified Republican outrage, if the net result of the Trump Russia investigation has nothing to do with Donald Trump, yeah. If it's, no, if, I would it's, agree with if, that. if if it's Paul Manafort, who everyone always knew was shady. Carter Page, everyone always knew was shady. George Papadopoulos, a drunken idiot, 28-year-old, who said some dumb things to Russian official or to um to Australian officials. And Mike Flynn, who again, everyone has known has been kind of shady for years. I mean, Mike Flynn's the only person who really concerns me in terms of our like national security because he did hold an important position. But with regards to everything else, I, I and and nothing is lost if that's the ultimate finding of the Mueller investigation. It's it's not like it didn't interfere really with Trump's presidency, despite everything he said to Comey about it being a cloud over his presidency. I really don't think the invest the investigation itself, which should be operating in private, it hasn't really affected his presidency. But it harms the people's faith, I think, in these institutions that are supposed to be independent. The fact that this thing has been been framed as this Trump Russia investigation when we're still really waiting for Donald Trump himself to have actually done anything inappropriate. Obviously, he said bad things, and even the fact that he was willing to onboard someone like Carter Page because he wanted to ease Russia relations was a bad call, considering that Russia is an anti-American nation. But outside of that, I think that the main concern is just people need to have faith and institutions need to act as though they are nonpartisan institutions. Yeah, and I would understand that. I would understand the Repu- Republicans' lack of, I don't know, I could understand how the Republicans would, would not be pleased if this didn't result, honestly, in something substantial and a potential impeachment of Donald Trump because it's like, well, what was this for? And yes, but at this point, you have to see it through, regardless of how, yes, yes. Regardless and, and- of how, how it came to be. Uh, however, I will say one thing about Trump's presidency so far that has been quite unfortunate is the amount of distrust that has been placed in many previously highly regarded institutions. I mean, trust in the media is at an all-time low right now. And and that's been fueled by stuff that has gone on in the Trump administration, whether it be rhetoric right from the administration or from people surrounding it, placing this distrust in the media, which... That shouldn't occur either. And now with this investigation and all the rhetoric that's gone on surrounding that, placing immense distrust uh, with the public in regards to um, agencies that are supposed to act independently from the government. And so with everything being being politicized or at least being framed as if it's politicized, you have to wonder what else is there to really believe in and have faith in anymore as Americans in in anything surrounding government, anything that even talks about government to begin with. And so I think what people have to be looking at and people in a position of leadership especially is how do we place trust back in these agencies and in these institutions? Because that's something that's so, so, so important for the average citizen. And that's, and that's why I'd like to start with the classification argument. And not that we'll linger on Russia for too much longer because I know that I mean, honestly, there's just been too much Russia for me. But um, but it's why I'd like to focus on the classification argument. So this is an Obama-era executive order. So classification, the way that, that the federal government can choose to classify um, articles, memos, any sort of entities, transcripts, 
it requires four really specific um, qualifications. So first, an original classification authority must be the person classifying the information. It can't just be anyone, obviously. And then the information is owned, produced, um, or under the control of the U.S. government. So you can't classify, like, a reporter's work. And then the information falls within one or more of the categories of information in the fourth section, which is the original classification authority determines that the unauthorized disclosure of the information reasonably could be expected to result in damage to national security, which includes defense against terrorism, um, and the original classification authority is able to identify and specifically describe the damage. And I think that when memos like this come out and when people who occupy high federal offices say things like Cory Booker said, like this would extremely like this would be violating for our national security. And there is no obvious or even vague sense of damage that would be pervaded by exposing this memo. It strikes a massive and significant blow to American faith in, in why these institutions must have the power that they have. And I think it's why Justin Amash is correct about pushing the idea that Republicans, who are so offended by the idea that this memo received so much pushback, should be willing to reform our FISA laws and should be willing to reevaluate what federal shortcuts have we taken that have been infringing on the Fourth Amendment. And I think that it's easy to miss that in the glitz and glamour of Trump conspiracy theories. But the Fourth Amendment as a whole is far more important to the average American than whether or not Trump ever FaceTimed Carter Page. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I am definitely not against reevaluating FISA warrants and how they are administered and, and granted. I think, if anything, that can only be better for the judicial system and, and for investigations as a whole and, and for maintaining faith and trust in these institutions, which I think is paramount to society. I think... Society as a whole, regardless of where you're even from, there's always going to be a level of distrust amongst between members of society and politicians because there's the whole catchphrase, well, politicians lie. Okay, but these independent agencies, they're not supposed to lie. They're not supposed to be affected by any of the nonsense that goes on politically. And so that's what is so damaging about these statements from, you know, Cory Booker, who's a Democrat, saying that this will destroy our national security. Uh, For people who aren't which is, I mean, majority of the population isn't reading up on all these, on all these articles, on the memos and, and, and whatnot. So for people who are just hearing that statement for what it is, that creates distrust in itself. Yeah. And, and that's my I concern. wonder if politicians, there's, there's been a shift maybe amongst the Trump, with, I guess, the Trump presidency of politicians using distrust and projecting distrust on other institutions to make themselves seem more trustworthy. Because if you can discredit something else, if you can discredit uh, a certain publication that has bad-mouthed you and made you look bad, even though the evidence that they have done it upon might be extremely credible, if you can discredit that, then you're going to look like the man and you're going to look a lot more trustworthy. So it's so dangerous what's going on with political rhetoric lately that it, it honestly is extremely worrisome, and I wonder where this will head in the future. Yeah. Oh, God. I, I, I mean, it, it cannot be understated how overstated so much of the rhetoric about the most minor aspects of this investigation have been in a way that makes it hard to take anyone seriously. It's sort of like a boy who cried wolf situation, you know? I mean, the, and, and that, that, is my, that is my concern, and... Um, well, with rhetoric, how about we talk about State of the Union and kind of what was used there? <laughs> um, okay, so I, for one, was very pleasantly surprised by the State of the Union. You can tell that Bannon is no longer in the room, you know? No you kidding. Can tell, I mean, gone are the days of American carnage, you know? that was I was very pleased by the note that Trump was trying to strike. I mean, I'll never say never, but they're not here right now, the American Carnage Days, which I, as a Democrat, and just as a person in general, I am pleased about. Let's keep yes. this rolling. Yeah, so obviously, so Trump used to great effect um, this narrative structure that was built around individual anecdotes that related to his policy. And usually I'm not, I think that the, I think that structuring a speech like that, it can be 
it can sort of conflate individual anecdotes with policy prescriptions that are not effective on a greater scale. But Trump used them well. Trump put human faces to issues that he had specific solutions for that I think could be good for the country. The fact that he used parents and children and, um, like, people who have actually faced human costs because of bad federal policy, I think that was effective in how he did it. I mean, that being said, so by word count, Trump's speech was not even close to one of the longest State of the Union's. But his cadence of speaking is so slow that it clocked in as one of the longest State of the Unions of all time. Um, That's not something I was a fan of, but I don't think... And also you can completely tell when he goes off of what the telegraph tells him to do. Um, Real good person. Works really hard. Just like the sides. Yeah, I I talked to his boss and he said he was really great too. Uh, (laughs) All right, Donald. I mean, okay, I actually think it's cute and kind of humanizing. I mean, like, weird thing to say with someone like Trump, like, I mean... Um, and, 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 and humanizing and Trump not, not often used in the same sentence. So and and but but it's also important to take a step back and realize I think the average American doesn't listen to that speech and think, oh, his cadence is too slow. He's reading from a teleprompter. I think they like the fact that he's not using the term like American carnage, and that he's clearly showing sympathy for people who have been affected by bad policy. Um, there was this moment in which uh, Ji Sung-ho, who was a North Korean refugee who escaped and traveled all across North Korea, China, to now live in South Korea. And just the fact that this is someone, that Trump could go from being someone who puts North Korea on a travel ban to now inviting this North Korean refugee and having him hold up the, the crutches that he used to, f- to flee to freedom I think that's a good sign for the Trump administration. Some people would say that's inconsistent or it's cheap. I genuinely just think Trump is someone who needs to be taught sympathy and is learning sympathy. And if this reflects changes what in policies, what low bar are we setting for our? President? It's a it's a low bar, but like it's 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 the bigotry of low expectations, you know. And it's kind of important here. Um, it was it was funny. I tweeted that night that. Um, I said, this is what an American looks like. A photo of uh, Ji Sung-ho holding up the crutches. Jake Tapper responded, he lives in South Korea. And I was like, with all due respect, Jake, I I, I was listening to what Trump said uh, 15 seconds before. But the idea that Trump can now see someone who lives in South Korea, is a South Korean national, was born in North Korea, and realized that that person embodies what it means to be an American, having that much of a love of freedom that you're willing to risk your own life in order to be free rather than die in chains, that is the most promising thing that I gleaned out of that speech. Well, I hope that Trump can actually see that person and it's not his team or his speechwriter that is the person seeing that person and it's Trump just simply relaying that message. Yeah. I hope that it hits much further to home than just the rhetoric that was used and the speech that was written. Uh, Because there are many contributors to that. Trump did not solely write that himself, nor did he coordinate all of the people who were there and the faces that were put to these policies that have kind of failed Americans and failed people even beyond Americans. And so I would say this was the most presidential Trump has sounded throughout his presidency, which great. I mean, I'm all for that. However, I wonder I wonder to the intent behind the speech, I guess you could say. I wonder to if he decided to just say a very, for the most part, politically correct speech or politically non-confrontational speech in order to avoid conflict. And then he can go back to his kind of radical rhetoric and, and policies that he has kind of portrayed throughout the year this year. Um, or if this represents a greater change and more of a shift to bipartisanship. And the optimist in me would like to say that, but also the realist in me is tentatively hopeful. Okay. Um, And I say that I think that it might be possible, given his immigration proposal that we talked about last episode, uh, that was a very bipartisan measure. And, I mean, he brought it up in his speech that Democrats and Republicans, we're not going to get everything we want, but we have to compromise. That was kind of, you know, the through line yeah. of, that, of that talking point. And so I would like to see that from Trump, more of the person who's going to reach across the aisle than be an adversary. And so we'll see. I think his speech, giving, giving off a moderate tone, 
played well, not only to his base, but to be on that, given the optics of Democrats just sitting and, and yes. stone speaking of bipartisanship and, and on their phones. Um, their butts so physically glued to their seats. I would say that it did not play well for Democrats to not at least put on a fake smiling face in that in that instance. It'd be different if Trump was giving his American Carnage speech, but in this instance, Dems, ah, oh, come on, I wish you just gave us a little bit better optics there. Well, it, it, it's 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 similar to my fear with us being desensitized to scandal with the whole Russia investigation because we're saying everything is a scandal, and then when there are actual scandals, we don't really care. I, I fear that the resistance is resisted out. I mean... I understand why Democrats, why even the most hardline Democrats wouldn't stand up and cheer for whatever tax reform, even though the optics of not cheering for hundreds of thousands of Americans, millions of Americans receiving bonuses um, and tax cuts, why they wouldn't cheer for that, but whatever. But, I, but, but that I, wasn't what but was portrayed at the time. It was but just I, the passing of the bill. But they I did okay. not see but it, the, looks, it come to fruition. But it manner. looks really awful optically. Uh, and this is if I were if I were advising the Democrats, I would say optically choose pick your battles. Maybe yeah. don't sit for nor- for North Korean refugees, showing that they've fought for freedom. You know, yeah, maybe don't battles, sit. Maybe point. maybe don't sit for American heroes. Um, I mean, like Trump disagree on partisan issues, but let's all rally be- behind the human issues. Why do let's you, let's why rally do you, let's rally behind people who have been affected by gang violence, people who have been affected by yeah. oppressive regimes. That's not partisan. That's human. And so, on those instances, I completely agree with you. Democrats should have picked their battles, and unfortunately, it came off as petty. Um, which, oh gosh, that just plays so. Poorly. Why do you think that they're doing this? I mean, you talk to more people high up in the Democratic Party than I do, obviously. Um, has that, have any California Dems explained to you what the strategy is? So what I've gathered, especially from following the California um, governor and Senate race quite closely and, and being tied with it, is that there is, I guess, a belief within kind of this Democratic movement for 2018 that, you know, the most we can oppose Trump and Republicans, the better that's going to play for us. And to be honest... I don't really see that as being something that might play well. I mean, Republicans control the House and Senate. Clearly, a great majority of people are siding with the Republicans. How well is it really going to play for you by completely opposing them at every single front? And I've talked about this before, but just like the blind support of partisanship. Just because I'm a Democrat, I'm going to refute anything Republicans say. That shouldn't be the case. We can agree on things. Tiana and I agree on things. And we're a Republican slash libertarian conservative and mainly a liberal Democrat. But we can agree on things that are that, that are, are agreeable and that make sense. And so it honestly reminds me of reverting back to children when they everyone's just are just Everyone's operating in bad faith. Yeah, when everyone's operating in bad faith and you're just going to disobey someone because of who they are or because of what, what they represent. Well... Let's think about these issues from a knowledgeable point of view and understand what they could actually bring and then decide if we're going to support it or not. I mean, it's 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 just kind of upsetting to see, to be honest. Yeah, and, and it's why I think as we sort of follow like the horse races getting closer to the 2018 elections, my God, those are already upon us, kind of. Um, the Democratic field, which I just think is a little bit more interesting because they are not currently the majority party. Um, and I'm always like, I was like seeing what the underdogs, or if they are going to be the underdogs, what they're up to. There's so few candidates that rally, a, that have promulgated a more unifying message. I can think of one like Amy McGrath. She's the Democrat um, running. I love what she's doing, by the way. She's so interesting because she, I mean, she is a vet and she is. Um, feminist and she has a way of writing ads that combat the divisive things that Trump says without being divisive herself. And and, and not and, to mention she's running in a Republican state. Yeah. But the thing as a Democrat. But the thing that I think I the Democrats are completely losing me on, and especially Democratic leadership. Well they're even losing is, me in, in is, that regard. Is, they they're fighting against Trump being divisive. They're trumping against or they're fighting against Trump being antagonizing. And they're just turning around and doing it themselves. I don't understand how 
fighting a divisive leader with further divisive rhetoric leads to anything of anything constructive whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, and and it's interesting because as you yeah. said, there are basically no Democrats running with a unifying message. And I mean, if I was running for elected office this coming um, midterms, that would be exactly the message I would be using because there are people who voted for Trump. There are a great deal of people who voted for Trump and a great deal of people who are Republican. I mean, to go back to California, which is a blue state, how, as a, as a Democratic candidate, are you going to get those voters who would vote Republican in a federal election? I don't think you're going to get them by running a Bernie-esque type of campaign. You're going to get them by giving everyone a little bit of what they want. And isn't that what politics is all about? Everyone, and, and what democracy is all about? Everyone being able to be happy and, and rally behind something? I, I don't know. You have to wonder if it's the money that's in play, crony capitalism, what it may be driving this divisiveness, but I just don't think it gets to anywhere productive because regardless, even if Democrats take over the the House and Senate or if they end up taking over the presidency, whatever it may be, yes, that leader might be a little more eloquent than Trump or probably a lot more eloquent than Trump, but it's still going to divide a great deal of the population. And so with me in politics, that's what's probably the most troubling. And again, obviously, you know, everything kind of relates back to why Tiana and I are doing what we're doing. But this is why, because regardless, we're both human and we can get along to an extent and we can understand where each other are coming from. And so I just don't see how no one sees that in these high positions where th- these should be the people who are, who are the biggest experts on these issues and who get it the most. And it just honestly doesn't seem like that to me. Yeah, and I mean, then there was, like, Joe Kennedy's speech, which, I mean, was, I don't know if it was forgettable, if it was bad, or if it was just boring. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, Avery, your take. Okay, well, honestly, it was a phenomenally written speech. He had plenty of one-liners, but he was, he was definitely playing emotional chords. However, I will he, say... <laughs> It he was has the it, charisma as, as much, of a sponge. As much as it was a beautifully written speech. If Obama had delivered that speech, it probably would have brought people to tears. However, There's there only is one only bro- one yeah. Obama. <laughs> Joe, you're not him. Sorry, I'm sorry to let you know that. Um, it was funny because even the cadence and how he was talking. Honestly, I think Joe Kennedy was trying to channel his inner Obama, but. As we said, only one Obama. And you say, so it, it me played, too. It played off. You probably say, Black Lives Matter. <laughs> and that, folks, that, that was actually probably why more Clinton we are here a, today oh is because, like, <laughs> only Obama can talk like that and get away with it because he's who he is and he's just that eloquent and charismatic. To me, it was difficult to listen to, although if you actually read the transcript of the speech, if someone were to not hear it and read the transcript, they would have said, wow, this is phenomenal. I think some of the analogies he used and, and, and the speech rhetoric, uh, he did a lot of kind of contrasting. He played off of a tone of, you know, with Republicans, you have to, in order to get something, you have to give up something. So he looked at, you know, <clears throat> pardon me, this cold still hasn't gone away, but you look at getting CHIP and and children's health insurance program funding health insurance for children, but you give up dreamers. So he was talking about this and he said kind of the through line was, as Democrats, you don't have to choose. I mean, I just wish it was delivered a little better. And I also wish he didn't have chapstick on his lip because that took away from all of it. I don't know if anyone's been paying attention to the Twitter memes and everything like that, but uh, poor Joe, he had... I guess he lathered on some chapstick before he went on camera. On his chin. And unfortunately with the lighting, it just was really shining off and honestly was distracting for absolutely everyone. Um, but very well written speech, I'll say. And and actually what I will say is he did have a unifying message. And what I, I would also like to add is probably my biggest issue with Trump's State of the Union speech is that is not what he said, because I thought what he said was relatively moderate, not too much I could get angry about, but it, it was about what he didn't say. No reference whatsoever to the LGBTQ plus community and no reference whatsoever to the Me Too movement. And I realize 
Honestly, he couldn't reference the Me Too movement because how absolutely hypocritical that would be. But that just goes to show who we're dealing with in office and how egregious that is to begin with. But no reference to the LGBTQ movement, no no reference to women's rights. Those snubs, I think, were pretty notable. And I don't think people are getting as upset as they should be about those noticeable snubs in his speech, to be honest. Yeah, but the Democrats weren't sitting for what wasn't said. They were sitting for what was said, and I think that's the weird thing. Um, Okay, a a small note that I think the Me Too movement obviously will require some legal reforms, I think especially in the Department of Education, you know, with Ted Land and whatnot. Um, But... But for the most part, I think the Me Too movement is about specific private industries purging themselves. And so for that reason, I never like whenever Trump tries to tell media outlets what they should be doing with their media staffs or businesses where they should be operating their businesses. With the Me Too movement, just because so much of it is private sector oriented, I do think that the federal government shouldn't be saying as much unless if it's like a specific policy prescription. Um but but that's just a small point with regards to that. But ultimately, I, I mean, I, I think you and I are sort of on the same page in terms of this was definitely an improvement. As long as Trump cannot get on Twitter and ruin this moment, it, it, it could be a good bargaining chip in good faith to go on if the Democrats are willing to come to the table. Well, I'd hope so. <sighs> and uh, on, 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 on that note, we should really get to the most pressing issue of the week. <laughs> Is yoga racist? Apparently, some people think so. Um, Apparently, white people are appropriating culture by taking yoga classes. Tiana, take it away. Okay, so I'd like to start off with a piece at The Daily Wire by Matt Walsh. And uh, Matt Walsh, uh, a pretty prominent uh, Christian conservative blogger, he wrote a piece entitled... Yoga is a pagan ritual. Maybe Christians should find a different workout routine. And um, I really like some of what Walsh has written about the ethics and the economy of college being superfluous and sort of being something that's pushed on people rather than economically beneficial. Uh, Walsh has some great takes on Trump, uh, the economy. This one, I think... Well, okay, I'll just, I'll just dive I'll just dive straight into it. So his central argument is that Yoga is based on a pantheistic understanding of the world because it has roots in Hinduism and is basically an act of um, heresy for a good Christian to practice. Now, as someone who is likes yoga and has done a decent amount of yoga... I've never thought about it as me either appropriating it from Indian culture or as me betraying my westernized roots. Well, geez, what's with the wars on everything these days? What, we had the war on Christmas, now what is it, the war on yoga? I'm just, I'm honestly confused. What is with the need to over-politicize everything? I mean, let's get the hashtag trending, hashtag war on yoga. Sure, I'll take it on. Myself, as an athlete, oftentimes... We do stretches or restorative treatment in which I guess involves probably some sort of stretching position that could relate back to yoga. That doesn't mean I'm appropriating it. It's cultural heritage. That means I am literally stretching to make my body feel better. I, honestly, like, it's this, this represents exactly what has transpired in the past year with over-politicization of, of things. I mean, this this is honestly just, like, the extreme. This is, like, the final cherry on top of identity the war on politics yoga. galore. No, so the reason, why, the reason why I wanted specifically to talk about this piece is because as a member of the right, I would like us to continue to be the anti-identity politics party, but a piece like this kind of feels like right-wing identity politics. Oh my gosh. Applying yeah. a political meaning to something that really is just a trend. So I have a friend from high school who's Indian American. Parents, I believe, immigrated here when they were very small children. She was born in America, identifies as American, still does some Hindu things, but for the most part, I mean, speaks English at home, like really no different than 
any of my other friends who have parents who immigrated here at a very young age is very Americanized. She took us to a Navrati celebration when we were in high school, and she dressed us in garbas and hijabs. I'm, I'm sorry, not hijabs. Um, garbas and saris and, um, and put bindis on us and stuff. And we went to a pretty woke, like, liberal private school. So I was like, I'm not putting anything on me. You tell me exactly what all this means. It was a religious celebration, so, like, I wanted to understand the significance of everything I was wearing. Um, and then we all went. We took a couple photos while we were there. It was a great time. One of just a fun random like weekend event that we did and I remember her telling me that she had a photo she had photos from high school up in her dorm this was like our freshman year of college and she she called me and she was like so one of my Indian friends came into my room today and she saw the photo of us at Navrati and I was like oh cool and my friend says and she was seriously triggered that I would let white people appropriate my culture and I I was taken aback because I was like, oh, wait, are you, like, oh, this isn't a joke. This isn't like a everyday feminism, like parody article or something. And I guess this girl who had walked into her dorm was like, yeah, but, but how could you, it's our culture. How could you let someone else in on it? And that's obviously so insane. And I fully blame the left for starting this. So I would like people on the right to not give in. I would like people on the right to understand. How can you blame the left for starting this when people on the right just wrote this article? Because it's a reaction to this. It's a reaction to years and years and years of I us wouldn't being defend told- it that way. I think it's just being politicized and deciding to play identity politics. It's not a reaction to the left politicizing some things. The right politicizes other things as well. I think, honestly, this is just stupidity. It, it is <laughs> stupidity at its finest in trying to assert yourself as some sort of intellect and genius by uncovering how yoga is actually culturally a victim of cultural appropriation when really all it is is whatever anyone derives meaning from with it. All it is for some people is a workout. All it is for me is an ability to make my body feel better. And all it is for some other people is, is something that carries a more spiritual meaning. Don't attack people for the way that they choose to practice something. I just think it's insane that you have people like Kat Timp who've been like the front lines of these wars against these insane identity politics for years and years and years. And ironically came out with a piece at National Review the same day Matt Walsh's piece came out. And she said, I am white and I do yoga and I'm not sorry. And it's very funny. And it's just about how it's just about how bloggers on the left have been attacking white people for doing yogas for years. And I would prefer that my own side does not sabotage our war against identity politics by embracing right-wing identity politics. And by the way, Matt, if you ever do uh, listen to this, you're more than welcome to come on the show and hash this one out with us. Because uh, obviously, Avery and I are kind of on the same side on this front. Um, I just think this is the absolute epitome of anything that has transpired in terms of politics this entire year. If anyone 20 years from now asks what you know the year of 2017, 2018 was in, in regards to politics in the media... I will just send them this article on the war on yoga, and that will epitomize everything that has transpired. Nothing else matters. With that being said, let's wrap this up. I mean, I'm sure next week, maybe there will be a war on something else. You guys can even uh, reply to us on Twitter with whatever you think the next war on something is going to be. It was the war on Christmas, war on yoga. Nothing Nothing is is safe, safe, people. It's going to be war on white Russians. Oh, God, please just don't take away like cocktails from us that's all avery and i have at this point yeah maybe we'll go back to (laughs) prohibition there will be an argument for that who knows um but until then you guys can catch us on itunes and soundcloud uh be sure if on soundcloud to follow us toss us a like on itunes rate us subscribe um and as always let us know how you're feeling we we really encourage feedback uh you can find us on twitter at tiana the first and for me at avery hogarth and until next time everyone um Stay safe. Hopefully no memos are released on you. And if you like yoga, keep doing your thing.